Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 8 and ending in verse 10, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Every preacher knows that communication can be a nebulous thing. Allow me to illustrate. The preacher said, what's wrong, Bubba? You ask for my prayers. Bubba said, I need you to pray for my hearing. The preacher, being a charismatic, immediately put his hands on Bubba's ears and began to pray. And when he was done, he asked, so how's your hearing? He said, I don't know. It's not till Tuesday. (laughs) I will try to define my terms tonight so that we don't get into that. One concerned mother spoke for many concerned mothers when she said about her son, he's not short on dreams. What he is short on is effort. He seems to have problems with effort. Let me go on record as saying that there is certainly nothing wrong with dreaming. I think we need more dreamers. You may recall that that great Old Testament man character, Joseph, was reputed to be a dreamer. In fact, uh, he had divinely given dreams, literal dreams that were prophetic and predictive in nature, and that when his brothers saw him coming, they would say, behold, the dreamer comes. We need more people to dream like that. Martin Luther King's most famous speech was, I have a dream, in which he bespoke his, his dream that there we would live in a land of racial equality. Those kinds of dreams are healthy and they're constructive. But tonight I hope that we appreciate the fact that it does take more than just dreaming. It takes more than just having good ideas. We have to at some point actuate those ideas so that we can use the dream itself as a launching pad for serving the Lord in a way that would be productive and that would broaden the borders of the kingdom and draw others into his eternal kingdom. Dreams are an advantage, of course, to those who want to serve and glorify God. But more than just dreams is required to to realize our full spiritual potential. Requires the right kind of effort, produce the right kind of spiritual results. I'm not going to expand on these next three thoughts, but I do want to, to say that I see three things right now in the religious community that vie against the recognition for spiritual effort. The one is the works versus faith conundrum. The second is the grace covers all misunderstanding. And the third is the let go and let God philosophy taken to the extreme. But I want to mention tonight, I hope constructively, five approaches to our work in in service in the kingdom of Christ that will help to trigger the right kind of spiritual fruit in our lives. Let's begin at the beginning. First of all, principle number one is that hard work produces godly results. I remember I was a 12-year-old boy excited about adding a hiking merit badge to my collection of colorful badges that most Boy Scouts had collected over a course of time. I checked out the requirement for getting that hiking badge, and I was somewhat surprised to see that it required two five-mile hikes, and then here was the deal breaker, a 20-mile hike, 
in order to earn that badge. Well, I carefully evaluated those requirements in light of my adolescent lazy streak and decided that that badge was not what I wanted after all. Laziness certainly is an obstacle to any worthwhile achievement. We at some point have to get out of our recliners and do something in order to be able to please God and to serve him and his kingdom. Plato said it like this, if a man would move the world, he must first move himself. He's exactly right about that. Thomas Edison said that a genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. So only a small part is having the right idea. Most of it is carrying that small germ of an idea, following through, and actually working to make that a reality. What enables people like Edison to reach those amazing levels of discovery and productivity, we ask us as we peruse our history books. Well, it may not be so much their brilliance as it is their attitudes about effort and persistence. They're not afraid of hard work, and they're also not afraid of the possibility of failure. They expend tremendous energy, and they get big results. And so we need to take that and then set it over into the kingdom of Christ, into the spiritual realm. Hard work is, in, in fact, an extension of our faith. Let me say that one more time, because that's going to be foundational to everything else that we talk about tonight. Hard work is really an extension of our faith. By the way, I've said many, many times from this pulpit, faith will only grow when we give it something to do. And so that's a part of this message that I want to share with you tonight. But we also need to know that faith is so foundational. If I don't have any faith, or if I have very little faith, then I'm going to be motivated to do very little in the kingdom of Christ. If I realize that my serving the Lord and you're serving the Lord, these are the most important things that we will ever do with our lives, with our time, with our resources, then that's going to move us to want to do even more in kingdom service. If you go back in the, in the New Testament and read the 11th chapter of Hebrews, you of course know that that's like walking through faith's hall of, of, of great achievers. Every one of those names that's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 are persons who did something important. And that walk through that faith chapter brings us face to face with God's greatest, most effective servants. But I think the real challenge is figuring out why. What was it that these people did that really got their names in faith's hall of fame? Well, it's the fact that they did something based on their faith. That is, they actuated what they knew about God, their trust and reliance upon God, so that they were moved by that faith to do something remarkable. And every one of them did exactly that. The writer commends each person mentioned there for an act of faith. You'll notice that following each name, there's always an active verb. They did something. A faith that motivated them to do something for the Lord, no matter how hard that might have been, and no matter how great the sacrifice. Now we could spend the rest of the time walking through Hebrews chapter 11 and me proving that point, but let me give you three quick illustrations. For example, just in verse 4, by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Down in verse 7, by faith Noah built an ark, and you realize how long it took for him to do that, well over a hundred years. By faith Abraham obeyed and went. Verse 8, God told Abraham... I want you to take your family. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to a land yet unseen. You're not going to be able to use a GPS. You're not going to be able to go down to AAA and get a map because I'm asking you, I'm telling you to walk off the map. And Abraham did just that. He obeyed and he went. And when we read that in the English language, the receptor language, it doesn't really have the impact, I think, that it ought. 
But if you go back and read Abraham's story, it helps you to appreciate, I think, in a greater, more dynamic way, just what it took for Abraham to take that leap of faith and to do what God told him to do. Where do you want me to go? That doesn't matter. I just want you to leave home, and I'll tell you when you get there. Folks, I'm telling you, that took a lot of faith. And, And when we began to evaluate our lives and our service to Christ, I think we have to use the same measuring stick. Our works not only are an indication of and, a, and founded upon our faith, our works are also an extension of our love. We understand that when it comes to marriage. We understand that when it comes to our family relationships. It's one thing to talk a good game. It's another thing to walk the talk. That is to actually demonstrate to your husband, your wife, your children that you love them. It's one thing to express it. And that's important. But it's another thing to then go ahead and demonstrate by what you do the fact that you hold them in such high regard, that you love them with all of your heart. God demonstrated that principle even in his own experience. In John chapter 316, the golden text of the Bible, God so loved the world that he did something. And you know what he did there in that passage is the greatest sacrifice and the greatest gift known to man. God was motivated by his love to do something about our lost state. He didn't just feel love and compassion and pity for us. He actually did something about it. And I'm just saying that genuine love is like that. We have a desire to do for those we love. We want to serve them. We want to see their best interests realized. James 2 verse 8 adds, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. And then later in that same chapter, he adds in verses 14 and then verse 18, what good is it, my brothers? If a man claims to have faith but has no works, some versions say no deeds, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by what I do. The practical side of us realizes that that really passes the muster. That is, it really helps us to appreciate that faith is more than just what you believe. It's more than just the embracing of proper doctrine. It's more than just going to God's owner's manual, walking through, noting all the doctrine, all the teaching that God would have us to say, yes, that's right, and that's what I want to be doing in my life. It's another thing than to actually follow through with that 24-7 on a a seven-day-a-week basis. If hard work results from faith and love, then the greater our faith and the greater our love, the more likely we are to have a willing spirit toward those works that are so important in the kingdom of Christ. The other side of our works are a pretty good gauge of the magnitude of our faith and the depth of our love. Here's a second principle that I think that we need to appreciate when it comes to making the choice that we're going to exert the right effort. And the principle is simply this. Work that is approached with a joyous spirit will get the best results. That is, God not only wants us to serve him, he wants us to do something in his kingdom. You and I understand that there's more to Christianity than just coming and sitting and singing songs with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's more than just offering prayers, that we're actually called upon to do something in his name. Paul, in his epistle to the Philippians, for example, speaks to us about being glad in the Lord's work. God wants us to have the right motive. He wants us to have the right attitude when it comes to our work. And I believe that you'll find that when you adopt the right attitude, then what you're doing for the Lord and in his name is no longer drudgery. It is actually a joyful thing. 
Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. Listen very carefully to verses 14 through 18. Do all things without complaining and disputing. I'm tempted to stop right there. That is the decline to whine verse. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think we've talked about that a little bit before. But I guarantee you, if you want to stand out as a bright and shining light in a perverse world lost in sin, the way, the way to start is to stop complaining. Stop belly aching, and you will stand out from the world, guaranteed. Holding fast, verse 16 says, the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Notice that, that constant refrain. Paul wants us to rejoice as we're serving the Lord, as we're exerting that effort that will bring others into the kingdom. Paul literally poured all of himself into his labors, and he did that with gladness and joy. He didn't have to complain about working hard. He never did that. You never find Paul complaining, no matter how dire his circumstances were. Instead, he suggested to the Philippians and to us that his example was doing only what God expected. Paul never patted himself on the back. He never expected anyone to praise him. He didn't want anyone to go out, you know, and have a plaque inscribed praising Paul's good work. Paul just did it for the pure joy of it. And when you and I can turn that corner spiritually in our lives, when we can worship with God's people, when we can do everything that we do in his service and in his name with a spirit of joy, then a new day will dawn in our spiritual lives. God has given us his, his guarantee. The writer of the book of Hebrews is, very effectively reminds us of an even better example than that in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, a verse that we've been looking at as our theme for this year. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author here says, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I, I want to suggest that there are three motivating factors for gladly and joyfully serving the Lord. The first one is that we can find joy in the Lord's work because of whom we're serving. That is, our understanding that we're serving the God of the universe ought to be an impetus and an incentive for us to serve him faithfully. It's a real privilege to serve the one who gave his life for us, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But a second reason, we can find joy in the Lord's work because of its purpose. As we mentioned this morning, Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Well, that's the ultimate purpose of all the work that we're doing for the Lord. Everything that the church does, everything that we as individual members of the church do, ought to be with the ultimate goal of saving souls, of saving those who are lost, of bringing men and women into the kingdom of Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 adds this thought. Adds another element to this idea of our purpose when it says, so whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. Third, still another factor contributing to the joy in the Lord's work, I think, is, is the reward. And I realize that uh, there probably comes a point in the maturity, spiritual maturity of most Christians, when you aren't just thinking about the reward, you're thinking about the gratification that comes from just serving the Lord on a day-to-day -day basis. 
But the reward is a factor. The Lord could have sent angels to do his work on earth, but he didn't. He's counting on you and me. He could have simply accepted our service as his due and said, well, you just did what you're supposed to do as a grateful servant. But, but instead, he promises things like this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Listen carefully to this. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. I want to say that again. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. That is, you're going to be rewarded because of your determination, your persistence, and your, your, your commitment to the Lord's cause and your determination that you're going to continue walking in his footsteps. What about Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 16? This is what the Lord says, your work will be rewarded. And then one more, Mark chapter 10 verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered and said, verily I say unto you that there is no man who has left house or brothers or sisters or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's. But he will receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Jesus wanted us to know that if we serve him with the right spirit, with the right attitude, if we serve him joyfully, that we will be rewarded in this life, but more important, we will be rewarded in the next life as well. The third principle I want us to consider is that work approach with a spirit of loving excellence Produces the right result. We've got, to, we've got to determine that we're not going to settle for spiritual mediocrity in our lives. I remember reading, <coughs> I'm going to be okay, don't worry. I remember reading uh, one time in a bulletin article about a young man who was in a high school woodworking class. And the other students watched him as he put a lot of effort into a bookcase that he was working on. And I mean, he didn't quit on that thing until all the corners had been perfectly mitered and the finish was just absolutely perfect. And one day, a friend uh, dared to ask him, said, Dwight, why in the world are you putting all of that effort into that bookcase? And he proudly announced, because I am building this as a surprise for mom and dad. He did the best job that he could because it was a gift for the two people in the world who loved him most. I'm just suggesting that we have Scripture's assurance that God loves us most. You knew that coming in here. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. And through the gift of his son, he is responsible for the salvation of our eternal souls. The Lord blesses us abundantly, folks, between the cradle and the grave. And all of us should call for an appropriate response, and thank you, a loving response from those who are the recipients of all those blessings. If we truly have that attitude of gratitude that we talked about a week or two, it will make a difference in not only serving the Lord, the degree to which we do it, but also the spirit, the attitude with which we do it. Let me inject one more Old Testament principle before we move on from this thought. Remember that great account that's recorded in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 24. You're right at the end of the book of 2 Samuel and there has been a plague that has been brought upon the Israelite people due in part to David's uh, uh, inappropriate action, I'll put it that way. And, and David realizes his culpability in allowing this plague or causing this plague to be brought on his people. So his first reaction is, it is my responsibility to do something about this. And I'm going to do that. And here's what the Bible says. He goes to the threshing floor of Arana. 
And Arana saw the king and his escort coming as they're on their way to his threshing floor. And so he went out and he did what citizens are supposed to do. He demonstrated his respect by bowing down before King David. And then Arana asked, why has my lord the king come to his servant? Now think about it. That's a good question, isn't it? A threshing floor of all things. A place where the grain is being ground and the chaff separated from the ground, all the rest of that, that's just a lowly place. It's like going to a factory, assembly line somewhere, that, that, that's a good place because people make a good, honest living there. But it's not where you would expect the king to spend his time during the day. So Arana asked a very natural question. David's response reads like this. I have come here to buy. I have the word buy underlined and then also highlighted in my Bible. I have come here to buy your threshing floor so that I can build an altar to the Lord so that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana then said this to King David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Now think about that. What does the king need in order to make a sacrifice? Well, he needs some wood to burn, and he needs an animal, at least one animal, to sacrifice on that fire. Arana said, got you covered. Got everything that you could possibly need. So we can just break up all the equipment here, the, the ox yoking and yokes and whatever, and we, can, and we can burn all of that, and we can make a sacrifice. O king, Arana gives all of this to the king. David's response in verses 18 through 25, I think, is telling he responded to Arana's generous offer by stating a very important principle. Here's what he said. No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Some versions actually pose that in the form of a question. Shall I give to God that which costs me nothing? That's a good question. Is it really a sacrifice? If somebody has provided everything that I need to sacrifice to the Lord, well, no. The very word sacrifice means that there's a personal cost, that you've given something. David was wise enough to appreciate that, and so that's why he rejected Arana's generous offering. I'm just saying that how we approach our responsibilities to God reveals a lot about how we, how we view God. The respect, the reverence, the gratitude that we have toward God and for God because of what he's done for us. If we see him as the loving creator and the sovereign benefactor of the universe, if we see him as the almighty king in our lives, then we're going to refuse to offer any shoddy effort on his behalf. We're going to also say, shall I give to God that which costs me nothing? We will lovingly sacrifice in order to give him our best effort. Here's a fourth principle. Work characterized by persistence leads to godly results. You know, those who approach the Lord's work with that kind of relentless persistence, even when the work is not easy, they're the ones who live the richest lives in Christ. And if you don't believe that, check, check it out. Just go through Old and New Testament and see that those who live the most gratifying, the richest, deepest lives that had the most viable relationship to, a God, to the God of heaven or in the New Testament to the Son of God, were people who gave the most, who did the most. And that isn't saying that you've got to work your way to heaven. We all know better than that. 
But we do realize that if our gratitude to God for what he's done for us is deep and it's sincere and it's real, then it's going to motivate us to serve him more. And then guess what? We're going to be rewarded and we're going to be gratified by that service. The most miserable person in the church is the perpetual pew warmer. The one who doesn't do anything except just come and observe the worship. So those who approach the Lord's work with that kind of attitude are going to to realize that in living a rich existence. Having been a long distance runner earlier in my life, the advice of a successful marathoner came to mean a lot to me when she said to me one time, when it starts to hurt, run a little faster. You know, that's good advice. Because it always hurts, even when you run a 10K race. And the faster you run, the quicker you'll finish. And the quicker you'll finish, the quicker the pain stops. I've tried to carry that philosophy with me through life. When it hurts, run a little faster. When the going gets rough, try a little harder. This is probably more about me than you want to know, but sometimes when I'm standing and shaking people out at the back, somebody will comment comment or compliment a lesson. And, And when they find out that I was sick when I preached that lesson, they seem to be surprised. And my explanation is, I preach better when I'm sick. And you may be thinking, well, you must have been feeling fine this morning. No. I do preach better when I'm sick, and here's why. I try harder. I realize that I'm limited, maybe physically or mentally, and so I'm going to give more effort to it. You see, when the job is difficult, instead of quitting, and then we ought to work with more diligence. One time when I complained about the difficulty of doing the Lord's work, a friend reminded me a smooth sea never made for a good sailor. That's right. A sailor who does not experience some rough water is never going to develop his skills to the fullest potential. And if our work for the Lord is always easy, if there's never any storms, there's never any difficulty, then we'll never sharpen our faith or our spiritual skills or deepen the depth of our commitment to the Lord. The advantage of a difficult task is that it likely will force us to seek the Lord's help. It will make us more dependent or at least more aware of our dependence upon the Lord. A grand old saint once told me, He said, the best thing the Lord did for me was to give me a difficult ministry early on in my preaching life. He said, I learned the most and I grew the fastest in those days. That's the right attitude. Here's one more principle that I want to share. Work approach with common sense produces the right kind of results. And we do need to demonstrate common sense when it comes to the application of our abilities and talents in the service of Christ. And you know what common sense is, don't you? It's it's what tells you never slap a man in the face who chews tobacco. I mean, we're, we're talking common sense here. Common sense dictates that we get involved in those aspects of the Lord's work for which we have an aptitude, for which we have a God-given ability. Now, apparently, members of the church at Corinth were boasting of their spiritual gifts. They were proud of the gifts that had been given to them by God himself. And, and from the information that we have in Paul's first letter to that Corinthian congregation, we have to assume that they were comparing gifts and they were claiming that you must be inferior to me because you can't do what I can do. And, and no wonder there was so much division and strife going on in the Corinth Church of Christ. And Paul clearly condemned that kind of attitude in his first letter. And, and then when he compared the body of Christ to the physical body, 
He wrote these words. I, I want to actually read it tonight before we finish this lesson. 1 Corinthians 12, you know it's there, but check it out with me. Verses 14 through 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole were hearing, then where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, but one body. And you may have read that, read that passage dozens or maybe even hundreds of times, and you understand the analogy that Paul is using and why. But don't miss that. Paul wants us to know even today that God gave Christians different gifts in order that the composite body of Christ would function properly. That is, we all have different abilities, we're all different parts of the body, and that's a wonderful thing. We ought to celebrate our diversity in terms of our talents and abilities. Always remember, the church is not a solo it's a symphony. The church would be in trouble if everyone was gifted identically. So one way to determine the areas in which the Lord wants us to serve is to determine what gifts, talents, and abilities that we do have. Determine what we're interested in, what our inclinations, our proclivities are, and be able to translate that into spiritual service. That sounds simple, but I think we need to approach that attitude or that uh, philosophy with a degree of caution. It provides a good way out if we're looking for one. Here's what I mean by that. When we, don't, when we don't want to pay the price involved in a particular task, it's very easy for any one of us to say, well, that's just not my gift. And that will, we think, rationalize, justify, and excuse our inactivity. We also need to be on guard, I think, against allowing that philosophy to desensitize us to the Lord's will when he's leading us in a different direction than the one we want to go or in which our apparent abilities lie. You may remember in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 4 that God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage when Moses was absolutely 100% convinced that he was not the man for the job. Now we read that from a historical perspective and we say, well, I'm glad he finally got over that. But I wonder, are, are we like that? When we feel that God wants us to do something that uh, is outside of our comfort zone or something that uh, we just don't really want to do, that's going to require too much effort and too much sacrifice, can we argue with God like Moses did? I'm, I'm not the man, I'm not the woman for the job. Sometimes we may even use the same rationale to resist God's providential direction in our lives. We also need to use common sense when it comes to the balance of our work because the Lord's work has a lot of different facets. For example, let me specify a little bit and, and then I'm through. Sometimes when we talk about kingdom service and doing God's work, we kind of, and I, by we, I mean those of us who preach, I think especially are guilty of this. We leave the impression that that means that unless I'm, you know, holding a Bible study with someone at my kitchen table, or unless I'm doing some kind of work like that, or I'm leading in, in public worship, then uh, th that's what we mean. That's how we define our, our spiritual service. I think spiritual service is a lot broader than that. In fact, I know it is. Let me tell you this. When mamas and daddies train up their children in the way that they should go, 
They are doing God's work. They are involved in kingdom service. And don't ever let anybody tell you differently, especially to godly mothers who have their children at their knee and who are working hard to bring them up the way that the Lord would have them to bring them up. And yet they feel guilty because I can't do all the other things that I used to do down at church because I've got to focus on my kiddos. Guess what? Focusing on your kiddos is exactly what God wants you to do at this stage in your life. Now, your schedule is going to be freed up later. You can go back to doing some of those things you did before. But let me tell you, raising those children the way God would have you to, that is kingdom work. Lifestyle or friendship evangelism, as we sometimes call it, as-you-go evangelism. Speak a word for Christ wherever you are, even if it's on an airplane and you never see that person again. You're doing kingdom work when you're trying to influence someone in any, at any level to bring them, to cause them to be brought into the kingdom of Christ. Working hard for the Lord can include caring for the widows and the orphans. If I've read James 127, James makes an argument that that is, in fact, the very essence of Christianity. That's not something outside of kingdom work. That is kingdom work. It's, it's balance that, that grows the best spiritual fruit possible. And, and we'll consider in greater detail uh, those thoughts in another lesson, Lord willing. I want to end by saying that my grandpa Owen... I wish y'all could have known him. He was maybe 5'3", if he had his work boots on. A diminutive man, but a giant in the kingdom of Christ. You can go to the North Georgia mountains to these very days, and there will be some congregations still in existence there that were, were founded because of my grandpa Owen's work. A gospel preacher, he was a house painter on the side, uh, that was where he got his money from, but his passion was preaching the gospel. He was perhaps the hardest working man I ever knew. And one day as I was helping Grandpa clean out a chicken house, yes, it is as attractive and as appealing as it sounds. As, as I was helping him clean out a chicken house, he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, Randy, a person who is not willing to work can't expect much out of life. That's grandpa wisdom, isn't it? And that's not inspired of God, but that's absolutely true. And I, 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 you can find book, chapter, and verse for that thought throughout Scripture. He was exactly right. And when we work wholeheartedly for the Lord, when we approach his work with the right attitude, with the right spirit in mind, then we can expect our Lord, and you may be wondering, I'm, I'm bringing us back to our text with this final thought. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8-11, through 11, Paul says this, we serve a God who is able to make all grace abound to you and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You serve the Lord, you work for him, you work for him with the right attitude, the right spirit, and the Lord will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. That is, you'll just keep growing and growing and growing in your faith till you'll soon not be able to recognize yourself spiritually. And if that's what you want to be and that's what you want to do tonight, we're going to call you into the kingdom by the power of the gospel. The Bible says if you turn your back on sin and sincere repentance, confess Jesus as God's son and be baptized, the Lord himself will add you to his church tonight. And you can be that kind of worker. We've sung songs about working for the Lord tonight. And I hope it's not just songs we sing. I hope that each of us approaches our kingdom service that way. I want to be a worker for the Lord. And if tonight if you want to sign on to his army, he's taking only volunteers while we stand and while we sing.
Sweet his cry of love and pity calleth, turn and listen, stay and hear.